Hi, this is Paul. I haven't spoken about this podcast much, but Justin Brierley's new new podcast is excellent. It's called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. I'll drop a link to it in the notes below. Uh, this, this is sort of, so, sorry, the rest is history. This is sort of nudged out the rest is history as my current favorite podcast that every time it comes out, I jump into it. Now, I am, I am in uh, some of the episodes, but I, I don't like it just because you know, just as a vanity project, because I'm in some of them. I think what Justin Brierley is doing, I think what Justin Brierley is doing is putting together the footnotes, the catalogs, the receipts of a lot of what I've been focused on over the last five years. And the beautiful thing about Justin is that he's got the relationships, he's been there for the conversations, he's got this knowledge of exactly what clips out there really make the point. And in this podcast, he's like brought all these clips together and compressed them down into an hour. And so this is a this is a huge part of you know what I'm unable to do with you know, thousands of hours of going through things, Justin sort of takes it and just puts it all together and bang, here it is. Here's an hour, hour or so. And here's Sam Harris talking to, here's Sam Harris talking to um, Richard Dawkins. And a lot of these clips I had never heard before. So it's really fun seeing what Justin has sort of put together and, and this project that he's doing in this podcast. Now, I'm going to play a little bit of the most recent podcast that came out. There's a section from Ben Sixsmith, and then also a section from Elizabeth Oldfield. And Elizabeth Oldfield, I've mentioned her before. She's got this little podcast out. It's on YouTube called The Sacred. It's kind of a small channel. She has a conversation with John Ravakey, a conversation with Ian McGilchrist, and then a number of other people. But in this podcast, in her interview, in the interview that Justin did with her, she really sort of distilled a lot of where... I regularly find people to be at, but the the quote right before the the interview right before with Ben Sixsmiths I thought was was also outstanding. Many of these secular thinkers, whether they're coming from a historical, social, cultural, biological, or psychological perspective, seem to be saying similar things. The new atheists were wrong to dismiss religion. There's more here than meets the eye. The same question remains for them as the one I posed in a previous episode to Jordan Peterson, perhaps the leading secular intellectual arguing for the social, cultural and psychological value of faith. Is it really true? Ben Sixsmith. Re religious belief systems like don't just claim to have a kind of cultural value, they claim to be true. And, it, you know, if there is a God, there's at least some extent to which he doesn't really care if you thought he told nice stories. He cares if you believe in him. So um, this kind of cultural Christianity, as much as it has a lot of virtues um, as uh, a sociocultural force, it's also, to some extent, it's a philosophical dead end. Uh, I worry because you can kind of go, yeah, it, it's nice to believe. You know, I don't, but you might, you know, enjoy it. Um, so I, I don't think it's a very meaningful alternative uh, to the kind of crises that we're facing. It's, 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 it's a more interesting alternative than the kind of nothingness 
that it replaced. Now, I don't really know Ben Sixsmith. I sort of know him through um, Bethel McGrew. Uh, he's not a Christian, but he's got, Justin uses him quite a few, has a fair amount of interviewing with him. He, he has a Substack. He's a writer. And I think, you know, his observations are really, really right on. But um, I'm not sure how far it takes us. Elizabeth Oldfield, host of The Sacred, a podcast from Christian think tank Theos, also has concerns about the movement I've been describing. She too has noticed a change in openness among public intellectuals towards faith, but fears that intellectual fence-sitting is far too often the result. I, I, I have a strange ministry to middle-aged men having midlife metaphysical crises. For whatever reason, God often puts me in the path. Now, this is so funny because when I, I was actually shopping in Costco and I was you know walking through the aisle with my cart, I'm listening to this this in one ear and I'm hearing her and I'm thinking, me too. I, I, I've got the same thing going on. Of men in their 30s and 40s and 50s, often but not uniquely, who had some kind of Christianity in their childhood, rejected it because for intellectual reasons or whatever. A lot of them have gone and done a lot of meditation. They've, you know, done stoicism. You know, you know, you could look at Paul Kingsnorth's story, which you write about in the book. You know, looked everywhere else except the place they started. And then in that lovely T.S. Eliot thing, you know, is to come round and know the place where we began for the first time. I'm seeing a lot of that kind of actually how do I live impending mortality much healthier response to the kind of midlife sense of your own mortality than buying a red Ferrari is going, she maybe I'm going to go to church. And I'm like, yay. Um, the trouble with that group is that often they hover. They are, they are hyper-intellectualized often. You know, they're listening to John Vervecki, they're listening to Ian McGilchrist, they're listening to Jordan Peterson. They're doing mindfulness. They might have tried some psychedelics. We can get onto that because that crosses the left-right divide. Um, you know, I spoke to Matthew Taylor on my podcast years ago and he said, look, I'm convinced of the the value of, of Christianity for societies. I'm even convinced of the value of it for individuals, but I just can't get there. And there is a lot of men who I pray for and I talk to and I'm friends with where actually that moment of surrender, I would, I don't know anything about Jordan Peterson's personal spiritual life, but it's one way you could narrate that. You get it all intellectually, but you just sit on the fence trying to make the Rubik's Cube work so that it doesn't feel risky to get on your knees. And that's, that's a sadness. And I think it's only if the church is able to walk alongside people in that moment and invite them into, yeah, like at some point, you have to stop thinking you can make all of this make sense in your head. And I think that really, I think that really nails it. I wanted to bring in a little bit more of this conversation. And it, it reaches a point where they talk about game theory. And and Ian McGilchrist is, um, yeah, maybe I'll just play that whole section. I don't think I'm gonna play the whole clip because there's a bunch of other clips that I want to actually use more with the Ian McGilchrist part where he's talking about the game theory. But that sort of, sort of sets up da Daniel Smachtenberger who's kind of operating as the um, the host of this conversation. And then what John Verveke says just super connected with me in terms of why church works, which I think for many people is 
part of the difficulty about their hovering. They, they sort of look at church and they look at what happens in church and they're like, oh, I, don't, I don't see how that will get me where I want to go. And, and again, this is sort of nested in kind of the game theory. And, and there's some, some pretty good deconstruction of game theory in this conversation, too. The niche. Mm-hmm. To, uh, because promoting wisdom, where it will always lose, game theoretically, is not that interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's something about the relationship of wisdom and power. And I would even say wisdom has to bind. It's, it's a master emissary thing. And I know this is very uncomfortable, as it should be. Mm-hmm. But if... The master doesn't bind the emissary, then everything's broken. So. And so that which is power-seeking has to actually be bound, which requires power, by something that is not power-seeking in the same way. Yeah. Which is why Taoism says the one... Now, before he goes into Taoism, I would say that relationship right there, I think, really connects up with the relationship between Jesus and this messianic tradition. Because everyone expects Jesus to use power to bind the other powerful actors of the culture. And in fact, that's sort of the the straightforward use of power in a messianic role. David will kill Goliath. Now, there's a dance with that between David and Saul. David won't touch the the Lord's anointed. And so David won't take out Saul, even though... They want David to take out Saul. And this dynamic then really gets magnified in Jesus beyond David. But the question is, well, how can God win if there's this dance of the master and the emissary? The emissary has to remain an emissary. And actually, part of what McGilchrist is wrestling with before this little part here is the best relationship is for the emissary to understand itself and remain as a faithful emissary rather than being a usurper and take out the master. One who wants to lead, everybody should run away from. The one who doesn't want to lead and everyone pushes into leadership, maybe you can listen to. So curious to hear your thoughts on wisdom binding power, closing the evolutionary niche on power-seeking, those types of things? Um, (laughs) So much. Yeah, so the, uh, I mean, I think the, I agree with, um, first of all, what you did was brilliant, and I really appreciate it. I'm liking it, and I'm in very significant agreement with it. Um, uh, John Keeks made a distinction between goals and ideals, and the word purpose equivocates between them. A goal is an end state, that everything else is in the service to, and it's the utilitarian, where an ideal is not. An ideal is something that is a part of the grammar by which you interpret and make sense of yourself in your life. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree. And we even did that with the sacred. We took sort of transcendent, imminent, and then we made this world, this is the Nietzschean critique, only had a utilitarian value for the, the, that world. And then when we stopped believing in the upper world, this world seems to have no value. Uh, that whole framework, I think, has to be rejected, which is not a rejection of the sacred. I just want to make that very, very clear. And so why I'm, 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 I'm um, sort of on that is because I think that this is part of the answer. You can break game theoretic circumstances in which right, you get people to remember certain things. Uh, so you can get some very core ones, uh, like you, you go in a situation where you take $20. Oh, sure. 
a situation, well, you take $20, but I, here's two people, but I got to give that person 40. So there's 60 and they get 40 and you get 20. Will you take it? And if you don't take it, nobody gets it. No, I won't take it. So people, there's a symbolic thing that they're oriented towards. And it's something like they, they, want to, they want to belong to a world that is a just world. And that is more important to them than their own individual immediate gain. That's the first thing. So there's a symbolic aspect. Now, what, what he just said is so important because what it shows is that there's, an, there's something in game theory that isn't accounted for by game theory. And where he's about to go is that if, in fact, the participants have not only a vision for the higher, this whole conversation is, is kind of about the higher and the lower and the need, and Ian McGilchrist had just been talking about the higher. And again, there's a bunch of other clips I want to use with that other Ian McGilchrist speech, but you can go, obviously you can go back and listen to, you should listen to the whole thing. It's a three plus hour video and, and entire, but it's, but there's, there's an aspect that, that game theory doesn't quite capture, which is that people are, are participating and have a desire for something outside the system. And this, this is actually, I think, connected to C.S. Lewis's argument from desire. Because even though people have never experienced a just world, they might have experienced little tastes of justice. They have a sense that it's also connected to the ontological argument that what if there is in fact a world? What if we can participate in justice at a higher level than we have ever participated in justice before? And that's true of this. What, what's interesting is that you know, in a lot of these conversations, the baddies are, first it's the Protestant, it's the Enlightenment's the baddie, or the Protestant Reformation's the baddie. And of course, then we sort of bring it all the way back to the 11th century and nominalism. They're the baddie. But but, but almost sets up kind of a, a fall story, which doesn't really work for us either, because all oh, the 10th century was when life was great. Well, I'm sure life was kind of great for some people in the 10th century, but few of us would swap our locale here, even in this very apocalyptic 21st century, for somebody else's seat in the in the 10th century. Uh, most of us wouldn't take that exchange. So give Stephen Pinker his due. But there's there's an aspect which is like C.S. Lewis's argument from desire in this whole game theoretical imaginary where we say no. Um, I will sacrifice. And, and this, I think, gets to Elizabeth Oldfield's point that people are hovering and they need something to get them off the fence, to get them off the bubble. They need something to have them commit. They need a vision, a, a stronger vision. They need something that is stronger than sort of their self, uh, their self, their instinct for self-preservation. They need something which is nobler, stronger, sacrificial, more meaningful. Something that will say, okay, this might be this might be suicide, but I am going to do it because there is a bigger, greater thing that will be gained. He who um, who can, he who cannot keep. Uh, it's the great Jim Elliot quote: "He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose," and and that's really sort of the understanding here. And Robert Nozick made a good point about this, that we, we didn't put that into a lot of, and for good reasons, we didn't put it into a lot of the game theoretic modeling because it messes up all that modeling um, in a lot of ways. 
And then that connects to, we don't actually supervalue, this is the sociopath, right? We will, we will, we will significantly undermine subjective well-being if we have a reasonable belief that we will get enhanced meaning in life. This is part of our evolutionary heritage as mammals. We're also primates. We're also sociocultural. And the, the prototypical instance we do this is have a kid. When you have a kid, all of the measures of su subjective well-being go down. Your health goes down, your sleeping goes down, your finances go down, your social connections go down, the amount of sleep you're getting is going down, you're sick all the time, your partner doesn't like you anymore. And you're in a constant stress situation. And you ask people, well, why are you doing this? Like, it, like, you couldn't pay most people. Well, why are you doing this? Well, because it's making my life more meaningful. Because they're connected to something, again, that has a reality beyond themselves. And, uh, right, I'll, I'll... and, and connected. It's so funny because it's not, again, it's not an, a conscious, rational equation that we're doing. It's much more of a program that we're running because nobody ever sat me down when I was 20 years old and said, now, you know, you should probably get married and you should probably have a lot of kids because that would be a good thing. Nobody said anything to me like that. Now, there were some elements in it, of course, in my Christian faith, we had this prohibition against premarital sex, which sort of drives you to the altar, uh, uses a very strong motivational tool to get you there, and, and, you know, enhanced by a community. But then, you know, I was a part of a Protestant tradition. We didn't have, um, you know, any prohibitions against using contraception or anything like that. But we just kind of followed the program and... Oh, Kidology said something in a video, which I thought was very telling. She had this video on surrogacy and where these gay men are hiring, are doing the, the rent-a-womb thing and buying eggs so that they can have babies. And this is obviously a very controversial thing. My point isn't about the surrogacy thing. My point is what Kidology says here. And now again, by virtue of some people watching her videos and knowing her story, I've learned a little bit more of her story. You learn a little bit more of her story, you can kind of understand why she has the perspective she has. These kids will now be forced to grow up without a mother because the dads look at them more as pets than human beings with development needs. Pray for these kids. Newsflash, everybody unfortunately brings children into this world because they think that they are going to stay babies forever and thus stay pets forever. As a very astute tweeter once said, sadly it's not an original thought, people want babies, not children. They want defenseless little babies who will stay cute, who will need them, who will love them, who are defenseless, and who are completely reliant on them. People don't like children. They like babies. No. Is that, does that happen? Yes. But quite frankly, yes, just what John Verveke said about children is true. But I always looked forward to my children growing up. And I appreciate them now growing up. And I appreciate having relationships with them. I mean, Jordan Peterson makes this abundantly obvious. It's it's not just, especially I think probably for men, I think men think about having 
Men don't think about having babies so much, although I've always loved babies. I don't think you can be a pastor and not love babies. I do love babies, but I love children, and I love my adult children. And I never wanted, yeah, there's a part of you that they're so cute and blah, blah, blah. But another part of you is like, gosh, when can we be done with the diapers and the car seats and the, and the college tuition? And yeah, 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 I get it. But no, people want children and have relationship with their children. Use your term, a value beyond themselves. He used another term, interestingly, which was sacrifice. Yes. Which has related etymology to sacred. Of course. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. something you can't say that you know something is sacred if you aren't willing to sacrifice for it. So please continue. As and, 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 this is, and this is another thing to remember, that the arrow of relevance for us does not point to just how are things relevant to me. Mm. Yes, it, it, we do have to feel connected to ourselves because if we don't, we're, we're dissociated, our agency is undermined. But, as Ian said, we have to feel fundamental, not how, am, how are you relevant to me, but how am I relevant to you? How am I relevant to us? And how are we relevant to the world? And yes, how is, are we and the world relevant to something that grounds that world? What Plato would call the good, right? And, and so I think that if we can get people to remember, this is what I would want to say. I don't, I, I don't even like the word remember. I want people to be able to fall in love with all of these dimensions of being again. Because, and this is one of the, this was Spinoza's big insight, right? The way you overcome a powerful motivation is with another powerful motivation. If we can get people to fall in love again with being, hmm. within, between, and beyond, we can, we can, we can break the game theoretic. This is what Christianity did in the Roman Empire. Mm. Christianity went out and it didn't, unlike Stoicism, that tried, I'm not saying we shouldn't try and get the government, but that tried, right, and it had some success too, but Christianity went and said, there's a new way for you to love yourself. You are not the non-person the Roman Empire says you are. Here is a new way, agape is a way in which you can love yourself, and it's not a hedonistic, egocentric power love. Here's how we can love each other, and here's how we can love God. And it captured the world. And it captured a world that was part, one of the epitomes of a world driven by power, competition, the lust for glory. So we have historical examples of if you give people if you can get them out of meaning starvation, so they're not in a scarcity mentality. When you're in a scarcity mentality, you drop into left hemispheric, I think Ian's right about that, is short-term, utilitarian, right? What do I need? What, right? Because this is emergency mode. But if you can get people out of a scarcity mentality and get them to fall in love with being again, hmm. connecting this to themselves and, and others, then you can get, you can call them to something that gets them to remember that they actually do value, I'm trying to use your language, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Connectedness more than success. I, I... That is exactly what happens in a church service. Now, we can make jokes about churches that sing love songs to Jesus, <laughs> but when you think about even from dozens at scales, you can do this little living stones, we've got, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40 people here singing together, worshiping together. 
if you think about that, and you think about, and again, earlier in the conversation, they had the conversation about values and love. And I thought that, I thought that was, that was, this, this whole conversation is really tremendous. There's a reason there's all kinds of people recommending this conversation to me. And that's usually the case when I get a whole bunch of recommendations about, oh, watch this one, watch this one, watch this one. Oh, okay. I'll watch it. It's like, there's a reason people are pointing me to it. But what happens in church is that, again, people are being called out of themselves to love God. And now God, of course, God number one and God number two, God is not just a soup, not just an agent, but God is an arena. And and so if you understand what I've been doing with God number one and God number two, that very much gets into what they're doing here and that fall in love with being again. Okay, now we're we're using Heideggerian, we're, we're using different terms to try to limit sort of just the, the focus that happened. So, so what happened in terms of the history of modernity is that God number one sort of gets lost in deism and leaving Christianity to focus mostly on God number two, the agent. God number one is the arena, God number two is the agent. And so when Chuck Colson, for example, uh, in the 1970s goes and tells his wife, honey, I'm a Christian. And she's like, I thought we were Episcopalians. That's sort of a, a, re, a refocusing from God number one over to God number two, from God as sort of the, the, um, the regime or the, the arena of the universe to God as an agent that you can have a relationship that you can fall in love with. And so getting people off that bubble is all about what John, that's what John is talking about. And it's about, well, if we can get people to value, if there must be, it's so funny because what he says about Spinoza, the the Puritan divines picked up on. Look up, Char, look up Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. If you look at Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans, now a lot of the neo-Puritans like like John Piper and Tim Keller picked up on this stuff. But it's the same stuff. It's all about the expulsive power of a new affection. You need a new love. And that love, you, you have to practice that love and you have to experience that love. And that's what Christian worship is. And this is all the way to smoke machines, skinny jeans, rock bands on stage, big box evangelical Christianity when you're singing with a few dozen or a few hundred or a few thousand people, you it is self-transcendence. You are forgetting yourself as an individual and you are bonding with the other people in that room. You are bonding with the great cloud of witnesses. You are bonding with um, you are bonding with God. You're doing all of this stuff. I mean, that's why that is such a powerful psychotechnology. You know, I had these um, a couple of years ago, I did. I had James Wellman on. Uh, he's a relative of Trip, Trip Parker, who's off and on. Um, high on God, he wrote this: How Mega Churches Won the Heart of America. Now, in this, he, he is not a mega church guy. He is a he's sort of a mainline Christian who has plenty of complaints about the politics of a lot of big box Christianity. But the fact is that mega churches work. And this is what he documents in this book. He says, these churches, these churches are popular, they are large, they are influential for some very real reasons. And he approaches them as a social scientist and says, these churches work in a lot of ways because they do exactly what John Verveke is talking about. They actually accomplish this. And 
people who go to church, and this includes mainline churches, and because they're big box churches, not mainline churches, big box churches, they outgive, they outvolunteer, they have a bigger impact in their society than people who don't go to such churches. The, these institutions and organizations actually achieve goals. Now, again, there's plenty of critique that you can have, but when it comes down to what these guys are talking about here, they probably wouldn't dare think about a large megachurch and what that megachurch is doing, but that megachurch is actually doing what John Verveke talks about. Now, I want to go back and listen to Verveke again, and I want you to think about smoke machines, skinny jeans. Um, you can find lots of this on YouTube. And again, there's a lot of people in the corner that have plenty of critiques for this, but the truth is, this is exactly what John is talking about examples of if you give people, if you can get them out of meaning starvation, so they're not in a scarcity mentality. When you're a scarcity mentality, you drop into less. And again, why did this work for poor African Americans in the Jim Crow South? Look at their look at their style of worship. It gets them out of meaning starvation. This Look at Pentecostal worship around the world, in Africa, in Asia. It gets them out of meaning starvation, and they become more generous, more selfless, more community-oriented. That is why the church actually does what these guys are talking about, sort of, in theory. Left hemisphere of, if you give people... If you can get them out of meaning starvation, so they're not in a scarcity mentality. When you're a scarcity mentality, you drop into left hemispheric. I think Ian's right about that. Is short-term utilitarian, right? What do I need? What right? Because this is emergency mode. But if you can get and that's how people live a lot. They live in emergency mode. They're they're, you know, I worked with very poor very poor people in the Dominican Republic, Haitians, and you know they're. They're trying to make money. They, they're working day to day. And usually what they did was they'd go out one day, they'd get a job, they'd make a little bit of money, they'd go to the store, they'd use most of that money, they'd buy the food for the day and they'd eat. And the next day, same thing. I mean, when Americans talk about living hand to mouth, these people were really work, living hand to mouth. They'd work with their hands, but then at night, they would go, like in many of these church, many of these communities where I work, there were two things you could do at night. A lot of these communities didn't have electricity. So there's two things you can do at night. You can go to church or you can go to the bar. Those are your two options. And at the bar, you could drink, you could dance, you could maybe, you know, get meet someone to get laid. But people would begin to understand that that's a very short-term game. So then they start going to church. Every night they would go to church. And what would they do in church? They would do exactly what John Verveke is talking about here. They would, they would get out of that meaning scarcity. People out of, I think Ian's right about that, is short-term, utilitarian, right? What do I need? What, right? Because this is emergency mode. But if you can get people out of a scarcity mentality and get them to fall in love, with being again, hmm. connecting this to themselves and, and others, then you can get, you can call them to something that gets them to remember that they actually do value, I'm trying to use your language, mm -hmm. right? Mm. Connectedness. But again, it's hard to, it's hard to love being. 
I love being. Now I'll hear, I'll hear people talk that way, sort of new age people in Northern California. I love universe. Oh, okay. Well, what about that? Somebody didn't pick up over their dog over after their dog over there. That's universe too. They're sitting by the side of the road. Do you love that too? How about, how about all this other mess we see around that? Do you love that too? No, and so what they love is Jesus, because Jesus begins to connect all of these things together. Jesus connects the homeless person, and Jesus connects God on a throne in the heavens, and Jesus connects all of these things. You hear John, Jonathan Peugeot talk about Jesus, you know, connecting top and bottom. My sermon this week, you know, this light the beam, this beam that the Sacramento Kings shoot up all the way to the sky. Um, it's It's connecting heaven and earth, and so... You know, these guys are talking theoretical and a lot of people are kind of on the bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason Peugeot and I always say go to church, and I fully understand that this is not so easy. And I have plenty of Rando's conversations. In fact, I'll be posting another one soon that's in the membership section because I usually post them there. And then once there's sort of a space on the channel, because if I if I flood the channel with too much content, yeah. So... And I fully understand how difficult church can be, but the reason the Peugeot and I always I always say go to church is it's actually at church where you will what John just talked about there. It's exactly what church does. It gets us out of ourselves. It gets us into a body, into a community. It takes our mind off of okay, I've got to work and I've got to eat and I'm going to do all this stuff. That's just a grinds on us, and suddenly I can be generous and I can give. But it's not just falling in love with being, it's falling in love with Jesus, which again is why in these mega churches, they're out there singing love songs to Jesus. Might be a little campy, might be a little kitschy, might be all of those things, but darn it, it works. It does work. And that's why this stuff goes. So anyway, leave a comment. Let me know what you think.